Greetings, listeners, and welcome to On The Spectrum podcast, a show that investigates the many complexities and diversities of being on the spectrum. We are your hosts, David and Lorena. Hello, Dave. And today we are going to be speaking with Helen Wood about a very difficult question. What is autism? Thank you for joining us today on our second episode of uh, On The Spectrum podcast. Uh, would you like to start by just uh, telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Helen Wood. My role at the Loddon School is currently Head of Staff Professional Development. So I look after all of the training needs um, of staff at the school. Um, I don't like to say how long I've been there because it's actually a really long time, but I've just um, <laughs> I'm nearly 26 years is how long I've been at wow. school. So I uh, came to Loddon um, following a psychology degree, so psychology undergraduate degree. Um, and when I first started the school, I was working directly with the, with the young people. So I was a teaching assistant and a psychology assistant. Mm-hmm. So I had a real interest in, in sort of behaviour and human behaviour. So I was doing a lot of the data analysis and, and working out sort of why, what some of the triggers were for our young people. And I think I've dotted around and done quite a few different roles in, in Loddon over the years. So I managed the, um, what was then the positive behaviour support team is now Department for Behaviour Analysis and Support. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved into um, to, to manage the communication and, and therapies team um, at a stage for a few years. But throughout my time at Loddon, I've uh, really enjoyed training delivery. Um, so probably about 12 years ago, um, we had the opportunity to sort of restructure the training team. Um, and it, it was my passion, really. So I was lucky enough to, to be able to manage that team. So what I do now is is a lot of internal staff training. So delivery of training about things like autism and, and positive behaviour support, um, but also have the opportunity to deliver training sort of externally and nationally, which is something that I really enjoy doing too. Excellent. Yeah, and even internationally, because we had a conversation not long ago, a few days ago, yeah, about right. uh, the possibility of looking into going even wider. Didn't yeah, we? again, I've been really fortunate. So um, throughout my time at Loddon, we've um, we've done humanitarian aid abroad. So um, I've had multiple trips to Romania over over many years, mm-hmm. um, really working with their humanitarian aid teams and and trying to influence their practice. And, and I, I suspect you probably know that sort of in the in the eighties and nineties. Disability was was very hidden in Romania until the end of Ceausescu's era, um, and then you know people were really unskilled and they and they had really a, a real misunderstanding because they lived in a medical model. They had a real misunderstanding that you know disability was something to be hidden away at home and people couldn't contribute to society. So you know dispelling some of those myths of autism and and upskilling people to really understand that autism isn't something to be ashamed of. It's something to to be celebrated um, and and understood and recognising that actually people can have a really meaningful contribution if they get the right supports in place. So, And and also really lucky to have done some work in Azerbaijan um, at the point where they had um, quite a political shift. And again, they've sort of gone through the same trajectory probably eight to ten years later than Romania. I've done work in in Finland. And so, yeah, there's been great opportunities to really influence international practice, which is lovely. Um, I'm I'm lucky enough to be in your team as a trainer at the Lausanne School, Um, as part of my role within the Loddon. And then I think when we are doing training and we talk about autism, one of the topics that come along is when you speak to staff and we have like a broadened um, international and worldwide across the world, people working with us. And I think, um, sorry, they, they said normally that they 
how they leave autism here and how they leave autism in other countries is absolutely amazing how we do it here how we can see the potential they have how we stretch them to f- fulfill their strengths and then to th- um, to thrive in their lives and then we we ensure that quality of life meanwhile in other countries they as what you said there is like a it's a same is um I had sometimes with a mum that used to work that it was like a punishment from God or yeah, something like there's that. There's a lot of myths, um, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And instead of seeing the, the goods, mm. we are focusing on the bads. Yeah. And then we need to turn the omelette the other way around. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's we've had um, a number of decades of learning, um, mm. haven't we? You know, you know, autism's been known about since the 1940s, but, you know, we didn't have the Education Act in this country so until much later than that diagnosis. So, you know, we've gone through a period of deinstitutionalization for people and you know making sure that every child has got the right to to an education regardless of of a diagnosis mm-hmm. um, but there's been a lot of learning and I, and I think you know we we're still learning um, and I think you know I've I've seen a lot of change at Loddon over the years mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that really excites me about being at Loddon is that we never we never stand still we never say you know right we've nailed it now um, we know exactly what we're doing we, we're always very creative in our thinking and and we have um, you know we have this amazing staff team mm-hmm. um, that's constantly evolving and and we bring in sort of fresh new ideas and, and I think we really harness the potential of our staff team so you know it's it's credit to them um, that we continue to be cutting edge I think but you know I think from we're, we're lucky in that we have um, we have the school and, and we have the ability to constantly learn from children that come to us and I think you know when I, when I left university um, I'd done my three-year undergraduate degree and I thought I understood autism um, every child that's come to the Lodden school since has questioned my understanding of, of theory um, and and theories change and I, I think we'll probably get onto it later in the conversation but um, theory and research is really really important for generalized understanding but equally what's really important is knowing the individual and learning from those autobiographical accounts of autism of knowing you know because autism presents very differently in every individual so you've got to learn about John and Margaret and Joe to really understand those features of autism Um, so I think having that balance between theory and um, and and those real individual accounts gives us that holistic understanding of autism but you know we we constantly move forward and that's exactly the right thing to do And, and you know we're not we haven't got that consistently across the UK. You know, uh, provision changes. Mm. Uh, and I think within Loddon, we've been lucky that we've had really brave leadership. Um, from the point where I started Loddon, it's always had brave leadership. Um, and we've been able to sort of say things like, OK, the government through Ofsted are telling us to do this, and we understand that and we'll respect that. We, we understand that our children need maths and English skills, but actually... What's really meaningful for our children is is being able to have those good life skills, those good social skills, and we can really focus on, you know, what's quality of life for our youngsters. Um, and we are, we, because we're an independent provision as well, we we have a little bit more flexibility to say, right, okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have our own curriculum, we're gonna have plus, we're gonna do this differently for all 28 children, and that's quite a unique. Uh, you know a, a unique way of working um but as you say you know coming into that you you can see the impact of yeah, that it, it made me think because i was with inspectors this year so we had off state education and as we have a different curriculum that is based on our children needs what like responding as, as specifically for for what they need how and tailor the, the answer or the educational answer if you want to say it like that uh, and then when they come to see and, and view and check the, the curriculum that you're speaking and explaining, and they're looking at you like, 
okay, yeah, and then carry on with literacy, how we are teaching phonics, how we are... And then like, look, we do these things, however, they are not meaningful for our children per se. We need to look a way to reach those kids, to reach that, that potential and do meaningful learning. Because... Um, it's, it's interesting for them and it's key for them to learn how to read, yes. But is it phonics the right way to approach? Um, and I think Jill for this is like quite um, quite good in uh, pushing that forward and say, look, this is what they need. This is why we do what we do. And I think you clicked on really, really well since the very beginning when you decided to change the curriculum and tailor what, 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 we, what we are doing. And we were actually defending this recently in some meetings so yeah and I think you know it's about evidence isn't it it's spot on (laughs) I think it's spot on (laughs) and and it's really hard to argue when you can see the impact in terms of positives for the children yeah I think that's what happened with it with inspectors it was like this is what we do this is the graphs this is clearly how you can see the behaviours have been dropped off clearly see how they settle clearly see how they are happy clearly see how even the families can see the impact at home when they visit so I think the whole approach never better said is working. I think one of the there's nothing to fight back. Absolutely, and I think one of the most powerful statements that a family member's ever said to me is, you know, for me, it's not about my child getting a certificate. It's not about my child. I know that my child is very unlikely to to gain a GCSE, to gain an A level. Um, but success for me was when I was able to take my child to the local pub and sit down with his brothers and sisters and have a whole meal. So be able to have yeah. with a family a starter, a main course, and a pudding without one of them being in the car, one of them being outside with him. Um, and just that moment of success for that family was amazing. Um, and that's, you know, you can't, those are the stories that we need to get out there because, you know, it's not necessarily on a graph, although we will have evidence of it, but those are really powerful. And I think as much as having a responsibility for our children to get it right for them, actually over time, we, we by having inspectors in and seeing it work, we shape practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's really, really important. And that's not to say we don't always get it right. You know, we, inspections are really important because, you know, we can get quite insular sometimes. So it's really important to have an outside Just view. Someone, yeah, um, and also explaining it to someone who's maybe not familiar <laughs> That Absolutely. also clarifies it for yourself. Definitely. Um, that, yeah. that we're, we're on the right track if you yeah. can convince somebody who's maybe not familiar with this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. yeah so we're, true. We're, yeah. yeah. And, and also because they're individuals, you think that's what promotes everyone to evolve so quickly because it's all tailored to the individual. Yeah. It actually promotes you to, like you said, creative thinking. Yeah. And thinking outside the box and mm. thinking towards the individual. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you define autism and the core characteristic to someone who may not be familiar with the condition? There's no straightforward answer to that would be my answer. <laughs> so um, the fact that it's a condition, I suppose, um, and, and it's something that we call a spectrum condition, um, is, it means that it manifests really differently in, in different individuals. However, um, there are some core characteristics. Um, so I think if we look back in research um, and back around diagnostic criteria, um, we we know that initial theories talked about deficit models. So um, young people with autism, children, adults having um, difficulties in three core areas, and and those areas being sort of communication, so both verbal and non-verbal communication, um, building and maintaining relationships, um, and then flexible thinking, and and that's termed the triad of impairments, and it's been a uh, a well-reviewed and largely critiqued model over the time, but it's something that still underpins diagnosis in this country. Um, what has changed now in our thinking is that we don't really think about autism as a deficit model. It's not really thinking about you are uh, have a diagnosis on the autistic 
autistic spectrum so you have all of these difficulties and impairments that's really negative thinking um so our thinking now is really about you've got key differences and i think um a lot of people with autism and, and neurodivergence talk about just having their brain wired up differently so and a neurodivergence really um there isn't a blood test for autism you, you're not not someone's not going to put a, a temperature gauge or a litmus paper on you and say autistic it's mm. it's a spectrum condition because the characteristics of autism are extensions um of our, our typical understanding so so someone who hasn't got a diagnosis with what we call, what we might call a neurotypical brain um is still going to have problems at times with communication is still going to have problems with with understanding and processing and memory so it's a really transient um sort of flux state and I think um, I'm sure we can all think about a time that we've been in a highly aroused state. So maybe we're in a point of conflict or, you know, we've had an argument with our other half. Um, and you know that you have this fight or flight adrenaline rush that is um, evolutionary. Um, so it, it dates back to, you know, where we were running away from from tigers and things yeah, like that course, and lions. Yeah. And um, so you have this big adrenaline rush and it prepares you to, to sort of fight or, or flee to or answer, freeze. Yeah. Um, and evolution has not particularly been very kind to us because we still have that adrenaline rush, um, even though the the predator, I suppose, or the or the the, the danger is is disproportionate to yeah. to our chemical and sort of response to it. Um, but what happens when we have that adrenaline rush is is our brain chemicals change and our processing changes. So I'm sure if you think about that conflict state, you will remember a time where your communication you're usually really well able to talk and communicate and you're so angry or emotional that you you get that funnel don't you everything mm. starts closing down around you like when someone freezes when they're talking in front of a crowd exactly or start stumbling yeah um, and when usually they can do that perfectly exactly yeah. a podcast for example i'm probably being less eloquent now than i would be in a normal conversation because you've got that adrenaline rush and it's and it's it can be really helpful but it can also really hinder you mm. um so we all experience that I guess in a in a neurodivergent brain, that threshold for panic and fear and response is much lower. And so what um, and therefore resilience and coping is much lower. So the triggers and the and the the trip points to get that arousal state happen much more easily. Um, so you know you are going to have people that 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 struggle um, that struggle with communication at that point, that struggle with understanding someone's body language at that point because you know their world is closing down and they're going to get to a meltdown state. Um, be flexible because you kind of see absolutely. like all, all the ways and you know this way, this way, and it's like that's not the way, but it's still yeah. this way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you can see how someone with autism, you know, if they're struggling in an interaction. Mm-hmm you know, every bone in their body is saying, withdraw, withdraw, get out of here. Um, and, and that's why we see some behaviour sometimes. I mean, I think in terms of core characteristics, something that was really missing from those original theories um, was understanding about the impact of sensory differences. Um, so I, I always refer to the film Rain Man because, you know, Rain Man was a, a 1980s film about autism Um and actually, I always say to people, if you've never watched it, watch it, because Rain Man was really well researched because it was done by uh, Dustin Hoffman, who played the main character, actually basing that on a real life character. So you had within the context of the film, you had autobiographical account. And, and so sensory differences are really well presented in that film. So the fact that Raymond um, has issues over fire alarms and, and has the nervousness when there's loud noises, that really, um, that really defied research at that time. 
time, academics hadn't really caught up with what people with autism were saying about what it was like to be autistic. Um, and so we now know that sensory differences has one of the biggest impacts. So sensory differences being um, someone struggling to process and interpret sound or smell or, or, or taste or vision and also um, some of the lesser known senses like introspection so the sense of being thirsty or hungry so you know we we know that we get that biological feedback don't yeah. we from our bodies and and you know oh I need to eat I'm really hungry but or I'm really thirsty I've, I need a drink many people with autism their perception of that sense is really different. So they, they don't feel thirsty, they don't feel hungry. So they might have to structure in a routine where they eat at four o'clock every day because if they don't do that by the clock, their body is never telling them and then they'll get dehydrated and the headache. So, you know, that that whole world of sensation um, can look very different. And and I would definitely say that that is a, is a core feature. Um, and it's something that we really need to understand that um, because it accounts for a lot of behaviours. Um, so, you know, we often see behaviours happening because of sensory processing difficulties. And it, and it also stretches our, um, stretches our thinking, really, because if you listen to some people with autism talk about sensory differences, it seems really unreal to us because it's extreme. So, for example, um, there's an American lady that talks about if she's in a room full of people, um, she can actually hear her own sort of heart pumping and sort of her own body system working so blood going around veins but she can also hear that in anyone else that's in the room so being in a crowd is actually a really really difficult place to be because she's got all of this incoming sensory information that we probably wouldn't be able to cope with um so you know her she has to manage that um and and there's lots and lots of accounts of sensory differences where you just think wow you know and we can identify with it smells is typical you know i'm i'm sure we've all been in a situation where um for me migraine um sort of trigger like someone that's got really strong perfume you know someone lorena if you were sitting next to me now and you had really strong perfume on I would struggle to to, to speak on. and to carry on and I'd probably have to say to you look I'm really sorry like you know I'm gonna have to either sit away or because sorry, I, <laughs> yeah because I've got the communication skills to do that yeah. but someone yeah. that's struggling and with the sensory it. differences but doesn't yeah. you know it's going to come out in a different and at way at the same time they're not going to be able to focus on any communication skills they do have because that's going to be overloading them and distracting exactly. them from using the skills that they do have. exactly yeah yeah absolutely so it's, yeah it's a huge impact on that. Yeah. and this is well thinking about that, that the kind of um response that you will give because as we have a good relationship work and outside work i will you you will be free to tell me if you wear that perfume yeah i find difficult to come and approach you and be talking to you for really long yeah. it makes me feel weird or even give me headaches which my answer will be mm-hmm. okay no worries yeah because i, I won't that use it anymore if i am with you yeah. because i need to add that myself to be able to sustain that relationship. So yeah. sometimes even it's difficult when they become, they come across quite rude or quite difficult or quite, or different, just different. And then instead of us saying, okay, so what exactly do you need yeah. me to do to make this work? We are like, oh, here we are again, the difficult one. Yeah. Oh, here we are again. Exactly. Yeah. Is that the, and it's some of the stigmas that the weird yeah. one, the weirdo coming with his yeah. weird things, and you know, and it's to break this. It's like, no, if this is what we need, this is what we have to do, or if this is what you need, this is what I need to adjust. It's just changing the perfume, of course, and or that's not wearing why, perfume, yeah. or, you know, like that. That simple things yeah. that. 
that there's no killing anyone, is it? And yeah, then making yeah. everybody's life easier. Yeah. And that's why those supportive relationships are so um, are so important. So you get that trust base. I had a really awkward conversation with a, a friend, a university friend of mine that I hadn't seen for a long time, and she came over for um, just popped in for a cup of tea and a piece of cake at, at my house, and and she had really strong perfume. I was thinking, well, you know, I've I, I had a really good friendship with her, but we haven't seen each other for a while, so this could sort of be quite awkward. And I, and I had to say to her, let Helen, I'm really really sorry. It's a bit sensitive, but. I'm just, I really want to see you, um, but you're just going to have to... But not with that perfume. But, but again, exactly. But again, you know, that's why I, uh, as much as we're talking about autistic spectrum disorder, my preference is to say human spectrum disorder. Let's be clear, I don't have a diagnosis of autism, but that's a clearly a trait that someone with autism can empathise with. So, you know, diagnosis of autism only happens when um, you get enough impact from the core characteristics that it starts impacting your life so there are hundreds of thousands of people that are getting through life absolutely fine without the need for diagnosis of autism Um, and and diagnosis i think is a really emotive subject some people um, for parents of children as well some parents will really want a diagnosis for their child they'll really want that understanding and some people with autism really want a diagnosis so you don't you don't have to do too much research too much sort of googling to find out celebrities that have got a diagnosis with autism and I guess the very famous one is Chris Packham who's you know in his 40s he's got a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome and okay. he's been very public about that um and as as and, and he I don't know how much you know about I like birds so I know a lot about Chris Packham because he's an environmentalist and into birds but you know he he lives separately from his long-term partner so they don't live together because that's problematic you know he has particular sensitivities around clothing so when you watch him on a tv program if he likes a piece of clothing he will buy it in six colors and you look at his his wardrobe and it's completely organized um but you know you've got to look at Chris Packham and say he's a really successful guy there's someone that is brilliant in his field you know, his knowledge and his passion for what he does is amazing. Has autism held him back? No. Has a diagnosis helped him? Arguably, yes, because he's got that understanding. Yeah, and, and yeah, and he can he can come across as quite harsh. He's you know he's he can be quite cutthroat. He's got a stepdaughter, and he'll say for years and years and years, I've never gone to a birthday party because it's hellish. I don't want to be in a room full of people. So you know, <laughs> but that or that diagnosis has has enabled him to have those conversations and, and understand why he struggles. Um, and, the, so, and the context, I guess. Yeah. Like, okay, this is how it is, this is why. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Definitely. And equally, not someone trying to be difficult, no. wanting to be difficult. Yeah. And equally for the next person, they won't welcome the diagnosis. You know, so it's it's a really personal thing, I think, diagnosis of autism. A diagnosis, isn't it very important to get the, the help that you need, though, like, as well? So there's that kind of side that's of the balance. argument as well. I think that's absolutely right, Dave. I think it's... Um, it's signpost support um so absolutely and, and arguably has chris packham or people with, that are very able with autism have they needed any formal support arguably they might not but someone that's sort of got more severe characteristics of autism and is impacted more you know absolutely they, they might want to access you know support groups or might need funding streams and and diagnosis is a passport to signposting and i think you know i 
on balance, I think I would always encourage a diagnosis for parents because um, for their child, but also for them, because as soon as you know what this is, um, you I, I, for me, I like to I like to know. I'd prefer to know a label and then I can research it and do what do what I want with it. But it's it's knowing what's in the local community, knowing what's locally supporting, and I think that's less isolating. Is you can then feel like suddenly this is not something that's happening to you and your family. You know, actually, there's lots of other families out there, and you know, when, and, and I guess you know one of the myths about autism is it's rare, and an autism and, di- and neurodivergence is is not rare. So one percent of the UK popula- population has a diagnosis of autism. Um, I read the most recent stats: uh, a one in sixty-eight children in the UK um, get a diagnosis of, of neurodivergence, including autism. So you know, it's this isn't rare. So even though you can feel quite isolated. Um, there are lots of other people experiencing similar challenges that you can reach out and, and network with. And I think diagnosis is helpful for that. Certainly, yeah. Mm. And it might help someone that, like you said, that um, is very able as an, as an autistic person, but just mm. to have that community or that, that reach, um, yeah. just once they get the diagnosis, they can then say, <coughs> sorry, they can then um, sort of go out and, uh, like mm. you said, make connections with these yeah. people and get the support they need. It's not just educational support or therapeutic support. It is just, um, just having that person to talk to yeah. that understands what you're going through. It's really important, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. the social networking, I think. Sometimes when parents happen that they feel um, lonely and yeah. lost, they don't really understand what's going on, what to do now, where's the next step, now I need to go and ask for help or support in the school, exactly what I need to ask for, because I'm not really... Because we are in in this world and we know and have clear probably this is what we need, this is what we need to ask mm. for. But for someone that hasn't got a background in education and is not related to all of these... Mm. When you're talking about autism, what that means, because it can be even scary, like, uh, and what that means, what are the impact of this, what's going to happen to my child, um, and what is next, like, because there's lots of uncertainties in front of you that you as a a mum and dad, you need to solve, and then you you don't even have the tools to solve them. So I guess that the diagnosis comes with a package of support, social networking, understanding, and and that is needed, I guess. And the understanding is important. It's like you said earlier about it then being individualised to to that person. That's why they probably think to themselves, well, what are we going to do now? How is this going to affect my child? It's like, well, we can't give you those answers, but what we can do is give you the scaffolding of of support. Of what to do, yeah. Of of, of, uh, the approaches that you can take. And I think I've seen that that exact situation played out with many of our parents where children have come to Loddon. But of course, because we're a residential provision, parents are far down that road so it's likely that their child has already been in specialist education and excluded you know and and so their diagnosis is a far memory for them um but i've certainly had very close friends that have got autistic children and and i've seen that very personal impact of of what that diagnosis what having a child with a difference um is to a family and and how isolating that can be but also how with that acceptance and with that support and that scaffolding and and accessing that, those networks, you know how what can first of all seem a really scary, really narrowing funnel of what my child's life is going to be like suddenly starts opening up. Um, and certainly, you know, the, my friend's child is is sort of teenager now, um, and actually, you know, seeing him um, just blossom um, is amazing. And and so, you know, just. I think it's really hard to be open-minded when you're in when you're fear you've got fear um but actually you know with support and with talking to other people you'll start realizing that you know this isn't this isn't a life sentence this isn't uh you know this is this is something that isn't that your child's not going to achieve 
Will you have to do things differently? Absolutely. Um, will you have to recalibrate your expectations? Absolutely. But actually, you start celebrating your child, um, you know, or your other, whoever it is that's got the diagnosis. You start seeing their strengths, their potentials, and you start seeing that if you get the things right, if you change your expectations, you know, if you're flexible and creative, you start seeing them being enabled and you start seeing them succeeding. And with that becomes that confidence and that morale boost. And, you know, it's... The children that we work with at Loddon are amazing because they're so resilient, they have so many barriers, but yet they have such a capacity to have fun um, and to enjoy. And it's completely joyful, isn't it? Yeah. I love it's, the sense of humour that still that, that, that yeah. comes out. And like you said, even though they have like some communication difficulties and things, they still retain that sense of humour yeah. and a bit of wonder and awe yeah, as well. Absolutely. Especially when we're doing like these sensory experiences like sensory theatres and um, all the sensory yeah. room. And you can just see the the fascination um, and um, the enjoyment they get out of it. And like you said, because they sense things differently, it might be quite refreshing for them to to see to see lights or movement in a certain way in a certain pattern. Yeah, and yeah. it might be very relaxing and calming for them so to experience those. Now things. that you talk about um, means, because they said like they don't they don't communicate or they don't have that sense of humour. That I think that's like talking about myths and misconceptions yeah. of yes. autism. They Certainly. they are naughty, and mm. people think that they are naughty and mm. they behave like that because they want to behave like that, or they are like that because they are like that. But like, well, they are like that because their brain was different mm. and then it's that fight of um make people understand that it's not not what they think, it's something else and they need to understand that part of something else. Um, so talking about um, uh, autism and personalities, uh, did you want to talk um, something about the uh, the differences between the two? Yeah, so we were talking about core characteristics. We were obviously talking about sort of communication, relationships, flexible thinking, and and we were sort of relating that to our children really and saying, look, you know, isn't it amazing that they've got this propensity to to still have fun and to still have those joyful moments and to still, you know, you were talking about awe. Yes. Um, and, and of course, those core characteristics are, are really key, but that doesn't mean that you won't have people with a personality. Uh, and and I think the thing about our children is, and, and anyone that's got a diagnosis of autism, is that they'll have a diagnosis with autism on top of all of their personality traits. So I, I often think that if you took away the autistic traits for our children, they would all be really different. You know the children that would be extroverts. You know the children that would, you know, be down the school disco and, and you'd know the children that would be in trouble and, you know, and, and pushing their parents with boundaries. And, and you know the children that would be really, really quiet and withdrawn or really polite. Or So autism doesn't take away personality. It doesn't say, right, now you've got autism, this is what you can expect. It, it, it sits alongside of all of the traits that we see around our children and that's why it has to, we have to have a personalised approach because it's not one size fits all um, and, and I think you know you'd, our children are amazing personalities aren't they um, and, and like anything um, we have to look at an individual and we have to look at their strengths and all those good things about them I, when I do staff training particularly around behaviours um, I often say um, that when we talk about anyone that's got a label um, we start talking about them in negative terms so if I think about running a Pratt Skip course which as you know is our sort of the way that we um, really understand behaviour and, and think about putting in preventative strategies when we're doing a Pratt Skip course and we talk about our children suddenly we talk about all of their behaviours. We talk about them biting and spitting and pulling hair and stripping. And at no point in my life 
has anyone highlighted all my negative behaviours on a flip chart? And, I, and, you know, I know Lorena very well. I know you very well. I don't start talking about Lorena being continent or incontinent. You know, I don't start, I don't use, in a friendship or in a professional relationship, I would be really mindful and respectful about someone's um, areas of weakness. And I would hope that they would do the same to me. You know, I if I'm having a bad day, I hope that someone's going to be kind to me. You know, I, I can tell you all the things that I do wrong, um, but no one writes that down on a bit of paper and no one says, this is part of a passport for you, Helen. You know, the, you've been unkind here. You've really inflexible here. She's had really nice person, but, but yeah. read Annex A. Definitely. And I think we have to be really careful that, you know, when we're putting in our planning... Um, that we we balance that with all of those good things about a child's personality. Because I don't read many behaviour support plans that say, this person's amazing, this person's so funny, you know, they're really creative. I read in a behaviour support plan all the things that I don't want to be shared about me. Um, and, and I think that then creates um, a world of assumptions. Um, and we just need to shift it. We just need to shift to positive sometimes and think about, you know, what we're recording. Are we... Are we only are we only really focusing on things that are around someone's worst moments, or are we equally focusing on what do we do to get this right? What when is this child doing brilliantly? When are they having fun? When are they engaged? When are they learning? And if we can have that holistic piece, it, it builds that bigger picture. Um, and and I think you know personality is a is a key part of that. Um, let's really focus on those positive personality traits, and that's a really good starting place in which to build someone's confidence and self esteem and planning. Definitely, yeah, and and I think people focus on the on the behaviours because they see it as the challenging aspect yeah. um, with that individual. But sometimes, like you said, um, you know, if you know the person, mm. then you can kind of um, you can kind of tailor your approach towards that individual yeah. um, and put them into a focused mindset where they can learn mm. um, using what they enjoy, what they like, what yeah. engages them. Mm. So it, um, it's there's a lot of beneficial um, aspects to to knowing the person as an individual mm. that can then aid with all these challenges yeah. that, that are happening. So, like you said, it, sometimes it can't all be about the negative. Sometimes the positive can have real outcomes for that yeah. person as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It will be as well. What you're talking about when you present one of your friends, you always bring the, the good qualities, is it? And even when that person has had a bad day, mm. you always say that. Oh, but don't worry, he might have a bad day. She normally is not like that. She's such a good person. She's, she's, do, she's this, she's this. So you always kind of balance and even cover the bad with the good. Exactly. Like you you try to understand, it's like, yeah, it's fine. Mm-hmm. He had a bad day. Mm-hmm. Or he's having a really bad moment in his personal life or her personal life. So it's always like kind of the good and cover the bad so they're yeah. not that good. Is it like when it's people that you know? And when it comes with our children, mm-hmm. it's like, or they, they buy, they they, they they help, or they will punch you, they will hit you. It's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Yeah. This person is is such a good pet, like, has a good kid, he's really funny, he likes to play with you, he would love to sit down with you and he, be part of the conversation, yeah. he wants to be there, he likes the, the one-to-one interaction, mm-hmm. you can go for a walk and then he will be with you or she will be with you. Yes, sometimes we have bad moments, haven't we, all of us, and... We, we react differently and it depending on how we are we have a bigger window mm. or a shorter window yeah yeah definitely mm. and then yeah when things go wrong this is how it looks like mm. and this is what you need to do to support him and drive him back mm. to a right place but remember 
it's because he had a bad day yeah. because he's we yeah. need to kind of change that speech and that yeah the narrative um, around it yeah. yeah definitely I think one of the best ways to do that is with the one-on-one interaction is um, yeah. to get to know the person and to, to see those positive sides yeah. is just to accept what they're giving you yeah. and just um, delve into their world and, and say like okay tapping this doesn't make much sense to me but mm-hmm. it means something to you and I find that once you start engaging with a fabric or whatever they're into mm-hmm. you start to enjoy the experience yourself and yeah. you you start to see those positive those positive aspects coming yeah. out of that person. and i think you know people that are neurodivergent have so much to teach us you know actually our 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 lives sometimes and our thinking can be really narrow um and and as you say you know it might be that that person gives you the biggest gift because you think you walk in their shoes don't you and you think okay i i've been quite judgmental about that i don't understand why you enjoy it so much and why you spend hours and hours doing it but if I can just step back from the judgments and just be there with you in that moment, you get that moment of magic, don't you? Where you think, okay, I, I've got a really good understanding of that now. And, and, and that's when that relationship starts really sort of, you know, coming into its own and developing. Yeah, and you can prevent, mm. um, uh, you can prevent those aggressive behaviours yeah. from happening once you understand that aspect of yeah. them. And you can use it as a distraction technique or yeah. you can just use it as a, as a technique to say, like, I know how you feel. Or yeah. Let's have a little moment where, yeah. you know, we're both on the same level yeah. and you don't have to go down these negative mm. paths or what, you know the negative yeah. um, sort of behaviours that yeah. come out because that person feels like you understand and you're respecting them and you're just you're acknowledging yeah. and it and it's authentic I think that's the really kid thing it's it's not it's genuine it's, it's genuine yeah, yeah. 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 genuinely yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah really key right so we're talking about myths and misconceptions and I think we all in this room heard quite commonly oh they are just naughty. Uh, we just what we were saying before with yeah. Dave they just need discipline yeah. just need to be like bam 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 yeah. and everything will go sorted do you know any other myths and misconceptions that go there are lots autism <laughs> in, that, in that line there are, there are lots yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, just to respond to that I think in the very early days of the National Autistic Society one of the things that parents asked the National Autistic Society to do for them was to produce a range of t-shirts that basically said I'm not naughty, I'm autistic. Because, and that was controversial because it was almost attracting a judgment, but it was also taking a lot of pressure off parents because, you know, I, I know that when we take our children out into the community, um, our children will be judged and, and we feel judged. Um, and autism is invisible. It's an, in, it's an invisible um, condition because, you know, actually the average member of the public, generally I would like to think that average members of the public are good people, they're well-intended, but they they sometimes very ignorant, not not in a negative way, just through lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. And most general members of the public don't know much about autism. So they'll want to understand, but they might be afraid of what they're seeing and they might not understand. But if they have someone in a wheelchair or someone that's got a learning disability that they can relate to, they make allowances. When they get presented with this person that is struggling and that they're seeing the effects of that, um, they don't know quite what to do with that information. So their fear kicks in and then and then they think, right, okay, this person's their behaviour is really naughty, or because in their head they haven't got, okay, look, it's fine, you know, they're autistic, they're neurodivergent, you know, they're being well supported. So their perspective, their lens of that situation changes. And I think we have a real responsibility to educate 
so that you know members of the public are, and it's getting there but members of the public are more aware of neurodivergence um, because you know every member um, every member of the public and every person that's got a diagnosis of neurodivergence or not has a an equal right to access the community has an equal right to share a space on an equal level um and we want to make that as supportive as possible for people um and i think the media is doing good things now so there's more people with neurodivergence that are well and and positively represented in the media so you know characters on tv shows or and that helps but i think um one thing that i struggle with a little bit is um, sometimes the media, I think, are a little bit irresponsible in their reporting of stories. So what you'll get is the big panorama programmes or the big newspaper stories around when things go wrong for people that are neuro- neurodivergent. So either, either when they're victims of, of poor practice um, or you know when, when, things, when things aren't working for them and they almost become demonised in the press. And I think I'm absolutely um, 100% supportive of whistleblowing bad practice. So don't misunderstand me. I think that needs to be called out. But I think those negative stories do an awful lot of damage, particularly to parents who are struggling to trust a system and then they have their confidence repeatedly um, taken away from them and destroyed. Um, and, and I don't mind the bad stories being out there because I think that we've got due diligence to, to make sure that all practice is good. I just wish they were balanced. And, and I think, you know, for a poor practice, there's probably 5,000 good practices. Certainly, but they but, don't get, but the, they don't get yeah. the same attention. No, um, so I think the media have a responsibility to dispel some myths, to be honest. I think we are living in a world of drama. So we like yeah. the drama. We like the, the someone having the meltdown and seeing mm. and criticising and everybody around there. Um, and that is what he's selling. Yeah. It, it doesn't just sell. just as emotionally impact to see a positive one, though, like when they um, when they have community outings or they, they have um, uh, where, where groups will meet mm-hmm. and um, go to the beach and do some artwork and, yeah. and things like that. Like Those kind of stories can also have... But like you said, I think a lot of the news outlets are kind of like, well, well, you know, drama sells. And, yeah, it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. on TV yeah. to see yeah, or on the newspaper yeah. when if it's something that yeah. positive, they're like, well, okay, that's fine. Uh, yeah. they, they pass it. So you were, sad. No, absolutely. Um, you were talking about what myths there are. Um, and I said there are lots. Um, so we'll cover some of them, I suppose. Um, so one of the, one of the major um, myths about autism is that it affects more boys than girls. Um, so and and in terms of diagnosis, um, there is a, a suggestion that the, the the underpinning genetics of autism disproportionately favour a male diagnosis, and and there's lots of myths around that. There's lots of myths that um, autism is a is a male condition or or extreme. Sometimes it's called extreme maleness. So you know, um, oh, wow. <laughs> so and it's a myth because actually autism is absolutely. Um, it impacts girls. Um, there is a suggestion that, particularly with high-functioning autism, where there's where there's less likely to be a learning difficulty and the and the um, the impact is less severe, um, girls are thought to to mask it more. So they yes. they go undiagnosed mm. because they're fighting harder and in some respects less honest because of that social peer pressure. They they're fighting to fit in, and so you know many many girls go undiagnosed until much later life. I was reading, um, I didn't realise that there's a TV presenter called Melanie Sykes who's um, has done a lot of daytime television, who's recently got a diagnosis of high functioning autism. I think she's in, and she's going to be really cross with me, but either forties or fifties, I would say. Um, I think she's in her forties. And again, you know, so late diagnosis in in girls does happen as much as it happens yeah. in in men as well. Maybe that's where that came from. If a load of boys were being diagnosed at an early age, yeah. Um, yeah. And 
And also it goes back to what we were saying about the challenging behaviours. Do you think that maybe boys are more um, prone to um, to having those uh, challenging behaviours so then they get highlighted and they get the diagnosis quicker uh, if, potential. if the girls are masking and sort of... Maybe, yeah. yeah. Hiding. And I think yeah. what often happens is that, particularly females, um, fight really hard to contain their behaviour but parents might see a really different side because it's so I'll give you an example there's a um there's an American girl called Carly Fleischman who's really worth looking at she does loads of stuff on YouTube um and she says that she's non-verbal but she's learned how to communicate by typing um so prior to her being able to type there was a lot of misjudgments made about her um capability intellect and it's fairly um she's really challenged some views because everyone was talking about her like she was disabled and and she's this amazing brain that just didn't have an outlet for it but one of the things that she said very early on particularly due to sensory differences was that her body constantly feels like you've shaken a can of coke and so if you think about shaking a can of coke it's like the pressure's building up the pressure's building up and she said for her she does it through self-injury but she self-injures she hits her head on the floor she screams and shouts because there absolutely has to be an outlet for that she can't contain it and I think what parents see at home sometimes is their is their child is is doing really well and fighting really hard to contain it in school so as soon as they get home they can be their true self and then the lid comes off the can of coke and they get all this behavior at home um and and then they're thinking this is a different child because (laughs) all the reports from school are like they're doing okay there's no behaviors but why does that happen and i think you know most of us in our lives won't want to show our worst moments unless we're in an environment that we feel safe in and and so you know we do get these big divides between how people behave in certain situations and we pick it up in recording sometimes sometimes in recording we find that incidents happen with a certain member of staff and and it can lead us down the wrong path we can sometimes think oh what's this you know what is this about this relationship is this the child doesn't like the staff member sometimes it could be the opposite sometimes it can be that the staff member they feel absolutely safe and they know that they can be themselves and whatever they do it's not going to affect the staff members judgment they're not going to be afraid you know they just they feel safe and so behavior is most likely to happen when when people feel safe i've certainly had that experience where you can tell that because you've you've set the boundaries with that child and you have built a relationship with them it's almost like they're saying um uh, well they they are saying that they're in safe hands i suppose or they're saying this person can handle it let's 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 do it now um and if anything that's probably given them a bit of control yeah um as well and it might be that might be an aspect of it as well is that they feel like during their school day Mm -hmm. they have to retain so much energy and then at home they're just like yeah like you said i've just got to let let, let the lid off i think because they they know that that person as well is gonna control what they cannot control yeah because we see now with children that they know that they are losing control and they need to as you said they need to open the can just to get everything out, yeah. which means losing control. But they know that they are key people that they will control the situation yeah. to keep them safe. Uh, and I think they are, they are fully yeah, sure yeah, they and give aware. You of they, they give you these yeah. signals yeah. and these signs. You, you that sometimes yeah. they can just look at you and just yeah. say, "Are you ready?" You, you, are, the, you are the best. This, this, yeah. this, you know, this has to happen now. Uh, and, and I think know. in terms of what schools can do we need to build in times that we don't have to wait until the can of coke is going to explode you know you we have to build in times for people to self-regulate and and we have to look quite carefully because actually what we do sometimes in a school setting is we constantly encourage people to cope so you know the first thing that we do when someone's getting anxious is we tell them to calm down you know we try and bring them back down so that the learning can continue and actually you know if you've got this building pressure actually sometimes the best thing to do even though it's hard I think sometimes to see it in the moment is to say do you know what let's just 
let's just let that person do, let that person get that twiddly for 10 minutes, knowing that that is going to bring them back down and then learning is much more likely to happen. Um, but I think, you know, we've, we've, we have to be really self-reflected as practitioners. And sometimes we think, actually, we're not always getting that right. We, 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 maybe we're trying to, we're putting too much pressure on people sometimes. Um, and I, I'm not to say that we shouldn't have boundaries. We actually should have boundaries. We all, that's natural life, isn't it? We all exist within a set of boundaries. But actually, if we, we have to think about what our outcome is. And if we want our outcome to be learning, we have to think, how do we best support this person to learn? Um, and sometimes that's about changing things. And I, and I always say, you know, I do a lot of staff training. And, and over a period of years, we've gone into... Uh, many special schools to for children that are at risk of exclusion to do some behaviour work with their teams. And I always say, I'm never changing a child. What I'm generally doing is changing the staff members' perceptions, their thinking, their approach. Because actually, if we can change our approach and our thinking, we can generally get it right for the child. And um, it goes back to the sensory needs and things like yeah. that as well. If you can get into their mind that, oh, every now and then you need to roll this ball over over them and then yeah. you're going to have a better lesson. Yeah. And it's just um, providing those provisions for yeah. them. Yeah. And it goes back to the myth as well, isn't it? Is Because often what we'll say is, well, that's really inappropriate. That's not learning. That's not, you know, they, they, they want to distract themselves. They want, they're having a toy. You know, no one else does that. And we take ourselves down a path based on unconscious bias or lack of understanding that actually is only going to end up with one outcome. And the outcome is that the child's not going to learn at the end of the day because they're probably going to leave your lesson. Um, but it's just about just trying to think, what do I want out of this and how is the best way to get there? And and being child-centred. Um, and, and that sometimes takes a lot of self-reflection and a lot of honest self-appraisal to say oh do you know what sometimes I contribute to the behavior escalation um how do I reframe that I think sometimes we need to think what 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 would I do if instead of a child with the label of autism that is already putting things on my head and make me work this way is a neurotypical person telling me that to speak in public maybe I need to have a pen in the hand because that makes me feel secure and then I can talk and that's like yeah. my my tweet or my pen. Mm. Would you tell me you cannot have the pen, you need to speak in front of 300 people without the I'll pen? I'll tell you not to click it. <laughs> <laughs> but you can hold it. When you know yeah. I, I am going to yeah. be like, oh, okay. Yeah. You would tell me, no, it's fine, you can, have your, you can have your pen, you can have your notes, you can have whatever you want. We will respond that like that. So what is the difference between me or, or an adult and a child that needs a twiddle mm-hmm. to be able to concentrate on what he's doing? And and yeah, and, and it doesn't make sense. Like where we yeah. are that that it's cri- judgment, critique, isn't it? yeah, like yeah. and hard with yeah. them. And then when it's yeah. us, we are like, oh no, that's fine. You can have the pen. You can. I, I always say to people, parents particularly. There's a lady called Ros Blackburn. She's a, an English lady that has autism, um, and she's brilliant. She's so insightful to listen to. Um, and she generally sort of starts as she, she comes across very eloquently because she's very practiced, but she has severe autism. So she struggles with her behavior regulation. But she always says, um, you know, when I come along and do a speech, I haven't got anything sensible like notes or, you know, I've got flappies. Um, and she says, you know, I, I keep them so that I can see them because those are the things that enable me. That's the difference between me leaving my house or not. And if I've got a, a flappy or a, or a twiddly in my pocket that I know I can get to, um, you know, that's really important. And but yet so often um, we look at those things and we say not appropriate, not age appropriate. Um, but yet look at us with our phones. You know, I, I, I know I don't know why, but 
my watch is really important to me. I, I don't think that I look at my watch. I'm not conscious looking at my watch. If I don't put my watch on in the morning and I forget it, that's a really bad day at work <laughs> because it's part of my routine. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I have an interest in mindfulness. So when I did a mindfulness course, one of the things that I said is in order to challenge yourself, change the change where you wear your watch. If you watch it on your, if you wear it on your left, wear it on your right. Oh God! I did it for about three months. It really challenged <laughs> yeah. me because it's it's it? changing something, mm. isn't it? Um, but you know, it, it's important that we we all have in our lives objects, possessions, things that are enablers, and we need to really think about what those are for people with a diagnosis of neurodivergence. Um, Ros Blackburn also says that she is very good friends with someone um, that, with a physical disability. And, and, and at one point in their lives, I think they shared a, the same social worker. And she was saying, you know, if you walk into this person's kitchen, um, it's a mini everything because they're a wheelchair user. So it's, a, it's you know, everything's tiny because it has to be at a level that they can reach. And a social worker would go, isn't this brilliant? We've enabled this person to make their meal. And they'll walk into her kitchen and go, you know, you've got loads of toys around. They need to go away. They're not appropriate for kitchen. But we're not seeing those through the same lens. You know, they're enabling the meal making in exactly the same way that that an adapted oven is is but again you know my argument is it's us that need to change not the person um and i think you know because if it works for them then we should be supporting that because again there's a positive aspect of if if that allows them and enables them then that's something that we should we should back definitely and i I, look i i think the age appropriateness argument has validity and the reason it has validity is is if you've got someone that is carrying something that um makes them um the gives them negative attention Mm -hmm. you know if you've got someone that's taking a you know a 45 year old that's that's carrying a massive teddy bear into a supermarket and that's going to get them an awful lot of negative attention we have to work with that person to think uh, where's the balance and actually is it okay that you know we get that we had it with one of our youngsters many years ago they they started with a huge teddy bear um, and they'd wear it on the head as well which was you know hard to hide because it's very obvious Um, and while that wasn't a problem for them in most places actually it was getting them some quite negative attention and over a period of time the teddy bear got smaller and smaller and actually they ended up carrying it in a rucksack you know it's fine isn't it you know it's there if they if they want it if they wanted to get the teddy bear out because they're feeling a bit anxious absolutely fine but again it's about being reasonable and working with someone to try and understand the importance of that item for them and, and then do confidence. it absolutely yeah. and, and like you said even if even though it was in the backpack and you didn't physically have yeah. it yeah. it just helped the confidence yeah. that it was there yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Made the right adjustments, is it? Yeah, mm. of course. Right. Uh, we've covered like one myth. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, too, it's too much to talk Go about. For it. There, there's a reason that you can do a degree in autism, right? There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, so I think another key myth is um, sometimes we call it the Rainman effect. It's it's this notion that. Um, people with autism have a savant skill. So a savant skill is this um, particular area of excellence or genius. So for those people that have watched Rayman, they will, it's particularly American film, isn't it? But they will know that Rayman had this mathematical genius and, and he broke some casinos because he went and counted cards and, and he had this photographic memory and it was money-making and, and all of these things. Um, that, that, comes from, um, that comes from a point of truth in that um, autism can coexist with a condition called savantism. It's really rare, okay? So there are many savants, um, often um, art savants. So there's a guy, a British guy called Stephen Wiltshire that's very famous. Again, he's got a photographic memory. So you'll see him because he'll, when the London Eye first opened, he went on like one rotation of the London Eye and then he'll do this amazing um, sort of 
absolutely like a carbon copy um, drawing um, with like every building right, every the, it's amazing. So they he, he's he, he's actually got an art gallery in London and New York now, um, where his his art is just celebrated across the world. And I think Lorena, one of your questions that you asked me to have a think about was success stories. You know, massive success story. So his savant skill has become his his vocation um and and again you know there, there's others uh, daniel tammet has savantism he holds the um the world record for reciting the mathematical equation pi he could beat a computer so you can he, do, he does it to, I, I don't know it's over a thousand decimal places so if you would say to him you know divide 1340 by 92 uh within a couple of seconds he would be able to beat the computer and so you know no one really understands why savantism happens um it can also happen with acquired brain injury um so there's been some cases over the years where uh, people have had sort of car accidents um and they develop savant skills um so there's definitely something to do with brain processing um but the myth is that everyone with autism has a savant skills it, it's really rare but it, do you it, think, it, do it you can think happen. that escalated with the um because a lot of autistic people have an obsession of some of some description which is usually a coping mechanism yeah but do you reckon that's that, that's something that may have uh, pushed that that misconception? Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. Again, I think the media is sure, has sure. an awful lot of responsibility yeah. there. It, it tends to be those things that get in the mm. media, um, but it, it can it, it can sometimes um, lead to misperceptions and, and, and myths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think another one um, is that autism can be cured. Um, and you know we know that autism is is a lifelong condition. Um, so if you have a diagnosis of autism, you know it's you're going to have it for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be limited, but you it's something that you're going to have to um, have supports in place to to manage. And and those supports are going to vary in you know throughout your life. So as we all do, yeah. you know mental health is a continuum, and we're going to have ups and downs on it. You know people with autism throughout their lives are going to face challenges and have periods of time where they struggle more with coping and resilience than, than other times. Um, but we know that it can't be cured. And, and that that myth has been quite damaging um, over time. And certainly sort of in the in the 90s and, and in the early, early millennium, sorry, millennium, um, lots and lots of parents felt really under pressure to find the next cure. So to find the next treatment fad. So look, at, at my time, you know, working with people with autism, there's been many, there's been, you know, I distinctly remember a time at Loddon where we were ordering Guernsey milk and all the children were just having Guernsey milk because that was a treatment fad. You know, and sometimes parents would be really under pressure to get their child to go and swim with dolphins because that would cure them. And I think, yeah. So there's doing, been lots. Special needs yeah, um, teaching and they came that the dolphins was like a really good, yeah, stream, like uh, a strongest stream in there. And some of them have been really damaging based on what we know about autism now so you know some of the myths have come from things like autism is about poor parenting and and a child isn't because of poor parenting a child isn't properly bonded and there was a terrible treatment fad called holding therapy at a period of time where you know parents were almost um encouraged to force a bond by holding their child really tightly until they became exhausted everything we know about sensory and tactile differences now will tell you that that had the potential to be a massive sort of cause of trauma for both the parent and the child not necessarily a treatment but I think parents have faced quite a lot of pressure and that's why it's been very positive I think that um, that there was a piece of research commissioned to say look there is no absolute cure for your child's autism there are many things that can help there are many support strategies but stop looking for a cure because actually you know it, it's not there this is lifelong and I think that's really helped with acceptance and it's helped shift again that perspective of you know this is something that we can 
that we can just take away because you know autism is a key part of people's personalities and the vast majority of people with autism when asked the question given a choice would you have it or not they want it because it's part of them and so it's part of their identity and you know it gives them strengths and insights and creativity that many people that are neurotypical don't have and so again it's judgment fueled it's one of those things that we've got to be really careful that we don't say this is something to cure so helen we were talking about um how uh, autism is a spectrum um so what are some of the effective strategies for improving communication skills for non-verbal individuals with autism uh okay um so I guess this goes back to an immediate myth, really. And the immediate myth that we have is that people that don't speak are less intelligent, and that's just not the case. So some of our non-verbal children are really um, well able to get their message across through other means rather than than words. Um, So I think we have to recognise that from sort of understanding but also expression um words are a moment in time they're a second in time Mm -hmm. so sometimes if you're having a conversation with someone with autism um that's non-verbal and they're trying to process what you're saying um as their anxiety escalates their ability to retain information is going to seriously sort of reduce so i think um we often say that um you need sort of non-fade cues and what i mean by that is the words have disappeared the words have disappeared but you need to supplement the words with something that is still there as a visible reminder so one of the most effective strategies that we use uh, and we've used lots of different ones over the years is is photos um so we find um photos really good because you can take a photo of i don't know i'm going to go to biscuits but i'm going to go to biscuits a custard cream or a bourbon or digestive and it's that real item whereas if you use a um sort of a a pictogram system or a a line drawing system you've got you've got a line drawing of a biscuit it still doesn't tell you whether it's the custard cream or the digestive so photos are really concrete um and and that we found really really helpful so and that's both expressive and receptive. So if you're communicating with someone, having a photo of a shared point of reference, but also giving youngsters um, really good access to photos to be able to identify needs and choices. Now, obviously, concepts are much harder to um, to demonstrate through photo. So things like finish or really, yeah, or more, much, much harder. So we tend to use a fairly eclectic approach where, you know, we, we've got different sort of symbols. Um, but again, you know, Dave, as you said, it's person-centred. So not one size fits all. Um, so, you know, you've got to explore a range of strategies that works and, and fit the child. Something from my position is, is Makaton. Yeah. Because I'm in the speech and language therapy department. I find some children really respond to Makaton yeah. more, than, more than pictures. Yeah. And especially um, when they're trying to tell you something, yeah. they'd much rather go like this than yeah. point to Absolutely. than point to a picture. Yeah, but, and it's yeah. it's language, isn't it? So, and and I think again, um, I know that I've uh, this is a repeated theme is that we need to change rather than expect the child to change. Um, but we have the flexibility and the and and the skill set to adapt our language. So you know we can train everyone in Makaton, we can train everyone in using photos, we can train everyone in hopefully not too much training required, but we can train everyone in in speaking in the right way. Um, but what we often find happens is that we revert back to our choice and our language. So you know you don't see. I think we're very good at doing it. We're very good at reinforcing it within our setting, but we still constantly have to remind people to use the photo book, to to use the Makaton. Staff will revert back to their choice which is language even though it's not necessarily the the preference for the child and i and i often say 
like I don't I'm not very fluent in other languages um but if I suddenly started talking in a different language if I suddenly started talking in Polish or talking in Greek or most of the audience would switch off after a few minutes you know they they might try and stay with me for a couple but they're going to switch off because I'm not talking a shared language and that's exactly the same as not using a photo book or not using Makaton signing if it's that child's preferred method of speaking a method of understanding and expressing themselves so again um the I guess the technical terminology is AAC. So that stands for sort of alternative and augmentative communication. But it's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about a total communication system that might feature Makaton, that might feature photos, that might feature pictures, um, that might feature speech. Um, it might feature typing for some children. So some of our youngsters are really tech savvy. Um, I talked to you about a young lady earlier that was nonverbal and couldn't speak but suddenly was able to type. So giving people the opportunity to have a voice in whatever way that works for them um, is, is, you know, so, so essential because we know that there are, there are huge links between communication and behaviour because most behaviour happens because the person is unable to communicate what they need at that time. So if we can get communication right for a youngster or an adult with autism, um, we see an immediate decrease in, in their stress levels and immediate decrease in restrictive behaviours. I've recently had that experience. Mm. I went to Spain recently and mm. um, obviously I'm surrounded by people and um, I, it, it, I find it very frustrating sometimes yeah. when I couldn't quite understand what was going on or suddenly I was being flung into a car yeah it's like oh we talked about this oh but I said it in Spanish oh, yeah. yeah and things like that sort of keep popping up where you go oh and now Definitely. we're in a car okay and I can see how that could, with someone with uh, that has those misconceptions and yeah. doesn't quite understand how being suddenly being thrown into a situation yeah. can be quite daunting and I think most people can relate to that you know <laughs> Again, uh, we talked earlier about doing training abroad. You know, that's a different experience because everything has to go through a translator. But when I have been abroad, um, certainly training in Azerbaijan, you know, going out um, for meals in the evening when there's no shared language, there's no shared language um, from a from a spoken sense, but there's also no shared language in terms of the writing because they use a different script. And and you know you can then see the role of fear because actually you start being very fearful about people's interactions with you because you don't have you don't have the reassurance and the comfort or the rapport so you know I distinctly remember being in a restaurant and thinking and it was a little bit of a tumbleweed moment because I didn't realize that in Azerbaijan cafes are only for men um and, and myself and a female colleague had strolled into a cafe on the first night and it was a little bit of a moment where it was like you know it really challenged people because it wasn't a societal norm you know opened a menu couldn't read what was written because it's a different script didn't have a shared language felt very under pressure because you know these British women are over here and <laughs> what's going on and it was really socially awkward um, and actually in that conversation I say conversation there was a lot of um, there was a lot of um, gesturing going on um, and a lot of body language which of course is what autistic people then I highlight this yeah, when, I'm tra- when I'm training staff yeah. and I say um, sometimes you know if you're sitting here like this or you've yeah. got very closed um, body yeah. language they pick up on that yeah. you know and yeah. it's something to think about you may be using the preferred method of communication but if you're yeah. not doing it in a positive way exactly. or, or an engaging way yeah. then all they're going to see is probably the body language yeah. so and it they, comes from yeah. fear doesn't it yeah. I mean actually what we like did like a smile can just totally reassure someone definitely and, and what we did in that in that sense was um, we ended up you know, the, the guy that owned the restaurant or the cafe was was asking us to come with him sort of through gesture. 
Um, we were sort of thinking, oh, I don't know what to do here. And, and we did. And he ended up taking us out the, out the back into his kitchen and opening all the drawers and pointing at bits of food and then basically giving us his version of a macaton. So we had, you know, chicken impressions going on. And, and, but actually, it's shared language, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so and I think that was an important lesson for me, which is you can't necessarily rely on words. You can't necessarily ri- rely on writing. But why macaton is and sign is so important and gesture is so important is because it's often a shared language that cuts across culture. Um, and or you know language barrier Um, but it's something that we have to be very mindful of getting communication right because as I say without communication the fear increases significantly and as a result of that behavior restrictive behavior is much more likely to happen so yeah so important to to get and and I think you've touched on our strategies Dave in terms of intensive interaction and uh, and mimicking and and rapport building strategies that that underpin communication I think it's good to let them understand that we talk the same language yes I think like when you talk about being a foreigner in another country. This is why I experienced when I came to England. It's like people start talking English really quickly mm-hmm. and then they they turn around the face in the other way around. They use words that you don't know because it's a slang and it's not the English that they teach you in, in Spain. And then you're like, ay Dios, ay Dios mío. <laughs> what? Excuse me, what? And you're constantly like, so you are point like, how many times I can ask excuse me again or yeah. can you repeat or so at some point you're like you're masking you're like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you didn't understand but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the yeah, person thinks you're but, that, you but you're not linked mm-hmm. you're not linking with anybody meanwhile as soon as you listen in spanish somewhere you go straight to that person because it's a really strong link absolutely you feel that oh there you go this that one is going to understand me yeah. even if you don't know her or him you, you don't even coming from the same country you've never seen each other before but there's already a link, a straightforward. And that's so I think we need to link do. with them. That's yeah. exactly what children will do. You know, if their predominant language is, is Makaton and they've got one member of staff that's brilliant at it, they're going to be there, there like a go. shop because that's it's exactly it. yeah. the same. Yeah. Actually, we've got a responsibility to make sure everyone's brilliant with their with their chosen language. Um, so, yeah, we, we invest heavily in it. But as I say, human nature sometimes means that when our anxiety escalates, we go back to our preferred choice, which often is a mismatch between the child's. OK, so again, reflective practice, really, really important. Talking about restrictive behaviours, because sometimes um, it's how both our children come across when they have um, a bad moment, what we said that probably will bend with our colleagues and then they don't have the ability so they will display restrictive behaviours because there is a lack of communication or because we're having a bad day or because they feel bad because sometimes they have like an illness, they have an earache or a stomach ache, but they are not um, having the resources at that moment to say, I'm actually sick, mm-hmm. and they, they display those restrictive behaviour. So how how we support these um, normally at the London and outside London because you, you yeah. do training wider. So I think that you could do a whole other podcast on behaviour <laughs> um, because it's it's the reason that most people end up in a provision like London, most children do, because generally they've been excluded from other provisions because of their behaviour, um, and it's something that is a huge area of focus for us um, because. You know, actually, if you've got someone that is at that level of crisis um, and that they're they're engaging in that restrictive behaviour, you know, it's telling you that something is not right for that child. Is that we're we're not getting something right? Um, and and actually, what we're going to do is is look very holistically about that child, and we're going to look at every aspect of their life and say, you know, what what's going on for them? So you know. And I think you're absolutely right when you talk about pain, ruling out health needs first is 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 really, really important because I can't I can't bear to think about a situation where 
I was in physical pain or unwell that I didn't have the ability to say, I've actually got raging toothache or I've actually got raging stomachache or period pain or whatever it is. And, and, and I can't get the paracetamol myself and I can't tell you that this really hurts and we can see why behaviours might happen. So ruling out medical is, is a key um, really early. But then I think we have to be really observant around um, that behaviour. Um, when it happens, where it happens, does it happen in particular activities, does it happen with different people, as we talked about earlier, uh, and having a an inquiring, curious, detective mind around behaviour, because actually the only way that we will support a child um, to move on and not have to use that behaviour is finding out what the unmet need is. So what? why are they demonstrating? Why are they pulling hair at that point? Why are they tipping the table over? Uh, is that because they can't cope with the sound, because they can't filter out what we can filter out you know is that because you know I've come into the room wearing a perfume that they don't like you know it's not necessarily visible and we do a lot of work on um trying to analyze behavior and and we always say what's the trigger what's the trigger what's the thing that's caused the behavior and very often staff will say I don't know don't know didn't see anything nothing really changed sometimes it's really obvious this child screamed this child responded um and and but you've got to look at what happened before what happened in the in the moment and what happened afterwards to build a picture of what purpose is that behavior serving for the child so if everything was really 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 quiet and then another peer screams and then the child uses the behavior or that's the point where the activity gets really noisy and the child uses their behavior and then funnily enough we take them to a different environment to calm down, you can start building a picture of what that behaviour is about. And if that's then about an escape-related behaviour, you know, they just want it out, um, actually we can then start thinking, what alternative way could we enable a child to, to say to us that they want to leave without needing to turn the table over? So you, you, you can then see how behaviour and communication are linked. Because if you can work out what the need is, um, you can then work out, what communication skills can we enable that child to have that means that they don't need to use the behaviour anymore? I'm always modelling to use a finish either a Makaton yeah. or, or the go symbol. Yeah, and things it's a like good that. example, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. Um, because sometimes it might be something different that day. Yeah. Like you could have all the you could have all the knowledge about the child yeah. um, there with you that all oh, this triggers and this triggers, but mm-hmm. then on the day it might be something like you said that when they turn around you go, well, I don't know. Yeah. But if they've got that ability to say, I need to go now. Yeah then we are able to de-escalate. Yeah. I I mean, I think an example for me that was really striking is that we had a young lady that um, we were supporting um, to go out into the community. Um, And that was part of her sort of development plan. Uh, And it was a reward system, actually. Um, She'd earned earned some money through, you know, for doing housekeeping and doing the things that she wanted to do. Um, And she had chosen to go out in the community. And she really struggled with sensory processing. So one of the things that she did was have headphones on. Um, and she played music because it would be a filter. Um, and it just so happened it was going really, really well. And it just so happened that one day she was in a local restaurant and she became really, really upset. And of course, you know, what happens is it, it unfortunately, when it comes to behaviour is it takes a really long time for opportunities to open up for our youngsters and not very much for those opportunities to close back down again because of risk assessment. And um, and she got really upset in the restaurant um, and the staff were thinking, okay, look, we did a debrief and the staff were thinking, like, what happened? She had her headphones on, we'd got all the supportive strategies in place and we, and bless her, we got back to school and we realised that the batteries had gone. And so, and it was just as simple as making sure that the batteries were on in her stereo. And again, all of the judgments, all of the consequences, of course, 
for the child, not for everyone else, because then we've got to re-risk assess. And actually, you know, we learn from that very, very quickly. And it's that constant learning, isn't it? But sometimes we overcomplicate matters and we look for historic patterns and it can just be as simple as, yeah. have you got the support strategy Certainly. right? Is have it in place? Have you got yeah. spare batteries with you? Yeah. Um, and so, but again, it's that constant questioning. It's that constant reflection of what happened? When did it happen? What was happening um, to try and... Um, stay again ahead of the game really uh, but have an evidence base for that as well and I think communicating with your team as well is very important um, I remember um, a child got upset again in a restaurant and I said oh did, did you let him see all the exits yeah. this is something that he needs and then you're like okay and that didn't happen this time we had a problem so now let's put that in the guidelines and let's make sure everybody knows that that he's going to have a pleasant time as long as he knows all the exits are yeah. something as simple as that is important for him definitely you know? definitely and it's important to share that with yeah. your team yeah and um and then everyone can approach the situation yeah. the same way and i think also particularly in a residential setting we have to be really careful that we don't immediately think we've got to do something about all that behavior because actually you know, some behaviour might be a coping strategy for a child. So actually, we might need to enable a safe way for that child to engage in that behaviour. But our starting point shouldn't be, we've got to change it, we've got to change it, we've got to change it. Our starting point would be, what does this, what purpose does it serve for the child? You know, and, and is it something that we have to change on a risk assessment? You know, or is it something that actually, if we allow... So going back to the Carly Fleischman, you know, she her behaviour was self-injury. Um, if she didn't self-injure safely in that moment, and they provided her padding to do that she was constantly feeling like there was no release. Um, you know, so for her, enabling that to happen safely three times a day gave her brilliant quality of life. But actually, if someone had said, we've got to stop the self-injury, um, her anxiety levels and her quality of life would have been, you know, higher and less. Um, so you've got to think about why you're changing things. Um, and, and actually, you know, we've we've got a really good um, longitudinal data set for our children um, over years and years and years. And, and we know that, you know, strategies, holistic strategies and eclectic strategies generally get really good outcomes with behaviour. And we've had amazing success stories of, of children that have come in with really narrow worlds because of their behaviour um, that is opened up and their quality of life is brilliant. And of course, you know, that and by brilliant, you know, I mean brilliant in the context of what they want to do and, and what contribution they can make. Um, so brilliant isn't measured, success isn't measured by, by what, I think. What, what I think. It's measured by what is relevant to them and in their best interest. Um, but... We absolutely know that while someone is is exhibiting lots and lots of challenging and restrictive behaviours, something's not right. It's telling you something, and then it becomes our responsibility to explore it and figure out why. Yeah, like I think I see down in in reviews at school, and then you can see that progress. And one thing that we advocate many times is don't see the smallest steps as nothing. Yeah. The smallest the steps contribute to the big pathway it's like you don't do a long pathway if you don't start stepping one step after another and then this is what this particular child is doing it's just stepping forward to arrive to the end and then we see parents saying that I can see the difference I can see the impact I can see that he's even more content he can self-regulate better he can tell us when he's upset and then you see actually why he's upset now because it's the way to bend it out or when he's actually doing something else uh, instead of having that restrictive behaviour he's telling us this is finished uh, instead of having a meltdown in a restaurant and then we just need to take a I'm thinking about a a specific child that is was with family in a restaurant and then they could tell when things were like this is becoming enough and then the child said 
this is actually enough. Yeah. Uh, and then they just took out. But in the meanwhile, she was able to be having dinner with siblings, with mom and dad. With yeah. Meanwhile, before, it was just a separate family because yeah. one of the parents needed to be with her and the other parent needed to be with the other two. Yeah. And it wasn't like a a family dinner or a family vacation or it was it was kind of separated now it can be together yeah. and she has the ability or is building the ability to say I had enough yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely those little yes. steps and move those, me away yeah. it's yeah. time to go yeah. Um, yeah and we need to consider that where children don't have the ability to say I need a paracetamol yeah. I had yes. enough of you I am upset because of this 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 happened yeah. sometimes it's, i'm upset because i couldn't go on the bus and i wanted to go yeah. um and they don't have the ability to say and that comes like the, what they call the tantrum or the or the crisis point let's say because i don't like the tantrum thing for them it's like anger and is the way to take the anger out we're talking about um research and then you Talking about London, you were mentioning that you've been, it's like, like a constant research, isn't it? You always prove, like, is it right, is it wrong? Will it work? Will it not? Uh, what we need to adjust? And then you've been adjusting in the history of 35 years. Yeah, getting that way. Um, I think, yeah, because yeah, London is 1988 as I am. Yeah. So <laughs> I got so that under <laughs> <laughs> um, So I think that you've been, uh, you have like a long way um, to be researching and trying things. So can you tell us a little bit how this research has impacted the quality of life in the children, the quality of the practice that we do, uh, raising the standards to a really good standards? Yeah, I standing, mean, I would say. Things change, practices change, um, our understanding and knowledge changes. And I think, you know, if I if I think about, we have something in London where we will have a payroll number. So, you know, I don't know what number you are. I think my number's probably a little bit less than your numbers. <laughs> when, and it's about, you know, the the number of staff member that you are on the on the books um and i and i look back and i think you know of all of that collective knowledge and the collective experience we've got um we've evolved and we've shaped good practice but practice changes and practice will continue to change and we will continue to to learn um but i think you know it, it's really hard i i think um it's really hard to measure and i think what i would say is um we are very creative and we're very flexible and we're very willing to try things so what happens i think around autistic provisions sometimes um is that let's say you have a you have something in place um you, so structured teaching whatever it might be you have something in place that is research driven um and that is becomes part of the organizational identity that becomes part of this is what we do um and that's not to say that that doesn't work for, and it does for many places we've never done that we've always said brilliant we've tried this it works for these three children so we'll keep that for these three children now let's try this and then maybe this approach works for these three children mm-hmm. so we have a very eclectic menu of things and that collective experience that we can think right okay let's file back you know let's see and um, we've got all of this stuff that strategies support mechanisms that may or may not help this new member of this new child to the school um, and I think that flexibility is is really really important so I think it's about not not limiting yourself 
by any one strategy. Uh, David, you talked about it. Intensive interaction, really powerful. It's not for every child, but it adds to a menu of things. Yes. Um, and, and that's the approach that we take with everything, really. Because um, yeah. is... some of them just want things, they don't want to be told what to do. Some yeah. children, I find. Some yeah. children want to have a very clear structure. Yeah. They're, they're not up for the playfulness. You no. know? And, and like you said, um, it works for this child, but it doesn't work for that child. Yeah. So being creative and flexible yeah. is and important. And I think yeah. absolutely what we've learned over the years is the power of personalisation is that you you yeah. can't have one approach you've and you, the personalization has to come from really good relationships and really good knowledge and understanding of that child um, and then you can start building on strategies building on support building on activities that are relevant and something that we have learned very very quickly when i first started a lot and we still had classrooms and um and i think uh, probably in my second week of being a teaching assistant a lot we had Ofsted in and I remember you know it was the Ofsted's expectations about science and and I distinctly remember it was the first time some of these children had seen a, a meter rule but we were measuring the the courtyard area and and it was completely chaotic because you know it, it was it was a tick box um and and it and it's one of those aha moments that you just think, why are we doing this? To what to what benefit are we really doing this? What's you the know? Of these? Exactly. Um <laughs> But we did still have classrooms and, and over a period of years we learned that actually we spent quite a lot of time outside the classroom um, trying to encourage a child to go in the classroom to engage with learning. But of course most of our children have got unfortunately a really negative association with classrooms because they don't fit that system. So what we did that was really powerful um, was say okay let, let's let's stop this traditional met- method, let's stop this traditional thinking around classrooms and groups and then let's you know, God forbid, let's think about what the child really enjoys and let's build the curriculum around preferred activities. So, you know, if you've got a child that really likes being outside in the grounds, really likes horse riding, really likes going and collecting the eggs from the chickens, we can embed curriculum subjects into that. You know, we like can, forest school. Yeah, so, so yeah. forest school is a perfect example of that. Um, and because, of course, a key thing about behaviour is getting the environment right. And if your environment is wrong, you're onto a loser straight away. Um, so those sorts of things. Um, so really understanding intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and recognising that if you can build your learning um, around things that the child absolutely enjoys... Um, they're much more likely to be engaged in the activity. And that is probably, I, I think that's probably the most powerful thing. That happened a long time ago at Loddon, but it's the most powerful thing that we've achieved um, is just that bravery to go, we're going to do it differently. We've got a responsibility actually for our children to do it differently because why recreate something for them that's not worked historically? Um, so yeah, it's absolutely a nightmare in terms of staffing. It's absolutely logistically, you know, no organisation would say, I want 30 different timetables. Um, it's resource heavy and it's really challenging. Why do we continue doing it? Because it's really effective and it has a positive impact on the child's quality of life. Um, so it's absolutely worth it, even if it's a bit of a bit of a, a, a headache at times in terms of implementation. I think it's more because um, sometimes often inspections come and they need to tick their the boxes of things that they need to look into and it's when things class a little bit and then you need to explain, look, this is not ticking your box as you expect, mm. but if you let me explain to you, you will see that at the end it ticks the box because actually we are aiming for having happy kids that actually learn and progress and this is what you're looking for and this is what happens yeah. here yeah, exactly. you've got to change it might not look yeah. into how your box looks like but definitely it's yeah. we, are, we are aiming for the same thing mm-hmm. and i think the inspectors being lucky exactly. they 
It's ticking your box if the the kid is counting, but if we do it in a music session, because that's what engages them, then we're still ticking the box. Yeah, and then behaviours drop down massively, you know, you Mm. see those little steps going and moving forward. So definitely there are improvement there. And then the quality of life increasing massively. Even parents are telling you, I can see my son or my daughter. It's hard to argue against that, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it might look different. The journey might look a little bit different, but as long as the outcomes are positive ones that are meaningful, Mm. you know, why does it matter that it looks different? Um, you know, but it's as I say, it, it, it's taken us many, many years of practice to feel brave enough to just say, let's do something differently. Yeah. yeah. Let's move on to uh, what are the main barriers and challenges that exist in providing adequate support and services for individuals with autism? Um, I think probably a theme of this podcast is is a, a lack of understanding sometimes, um, and society's sort of judgments or misjudgments and misunderstanding around autism and neurodivergence so I think that's a barrier for people but it's a barrier for families as well um, so often people feel misunderstood or judged um, and I think look I don't I don't want to get too political about it but I have a personal view that at our current point in society um, we're almost at a point where there's more disparity um, and and you know in a lot of different sort of social values really I think um, and it's really hard to be different um, and I think we live in a society that human nature we have the ability to be kind and tolerant and inclusive but on the flip side of that we have the ability to really impact people if we don't do those things and I think um, I think more recognition that autism um, isn't a disability more recognition that um, autism isn't a deficit or a negative and more recognition that you know people with autism are brilliant people um, that can contribute to society in an equal way from neurotypical people Um, if we can if we can get that inclusivity and tolerance and I just think for me the start and end point should always be kindness, um, kindness and open-mindedness, and I think that will overcome an awful lot of awful lot of barriers. I think it's what Andy was saying last month in the podcast is, is see what are the strengths for that person. Yeah, absolutely. How, how that person can what, what can that person give to me, and then from there we go. Yeah. Instead of seeing oh he's autistic, he's the weird guy, or the weird girl, or you know instead of seeing the negative, he's turning to the other side. Yeah. What are the strengths? Let's push for those ones and get the best and as much as we can from there. Um, So what advice would you give to families and caregivers who may feel a bit overwhelmed by the challenges of raising a child with autism? Yeah, that's really important, I think, because um, I think having, particularly in the early stages of getting a diagnosis, I think that can be a frightening space for families. It can be overwhelming um, and it can be really isolating. So, you know very often as i said earlier families have to completely change their expectations and hopes and um and it takes a period of readjustment and i think reaching out and finding what support is available is so important so to stop the isolation because although this seems like no one else is experiencing this no one else is is having the sleepless nights or you know having to have um, you know, rebuilt your dining room for the third time because there's, you know, there's been meltdowns, and it seems sometimes it can feel quite hopeless. I think for families, but I think, um, and it's hard to reach out because you feel fearful of being judged. Um, but if you can reach out and find out what's in your local community, um, 
you will find that you're not by yourself and there are things that will help and there are whether that's other parents or whether that's professionals that are not there to judge and and are there to just sort of say I get it I know this is tough these are things that might help you in the future um these are things that we can put in place now you know let's just try this and I think sometimes parents don't have the capacity they're so tired to be honest they don't have the capacity to read a book um but you don't have to read a book to learn what's right for your child. You are the bearer of knowledge around your child. Um, you need people to listen to you to be able to say, oh, I wonder whether it is because of this, that and the other. I wonder whether if you just tried this or maybe if you put a few photos in place, you know, if, you, if you're able to share what your barriers and your difficulties are, other people have read the books. Other people have got the experience that can help you. And I think, you know, one thing, just an example that Lodden Training um, offer is is parent drop-ins. They offer parent coffee mornings just as a really safe, non-judgmental space to come in and, and have a, a cup of tea and a cake with um, a range of professionals that will just sort of say, how's it going for you? How's the week been? Is there anything that particularly you want to talk about? Um, you know, do you want to talk about behavior do you want to talk about communication what are the things that you're finding most challenging and let's see either just to listen or or to advise or to give you ideas and I think you know that that's a really good thing so often parents like the face-to-face often parents struggle with face-to-face because actually they can't find their time in their day where they're not looking after their child so you know I'd encourage parents to think about what other media is available so you know we're doing a podcast at the minute hopefully those sorts of things help parents but um, video clips you know online tutorials there's actually a lot of um, good autism resources that are online now there's some like anything on social media there's some variable quality um and i would always go to start with reputable sites so the national autistic society is a really good place to start they signpost a lot of information um they will also have local links so most um societies will have um a local sort of autism branch um and even if that's the starting point where they can say do you know what there's these parent support groups or you might want to have a look at this online or you know there's some funded training if you if you're really interested in finding out the theory it doesn't have to be in books or research articles you know it can be in this free e-learning so it's just i think it's very daunting for parents to work out what the offer is um but it is plentiful um you just might need a bit of help for someone else to 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 support you to find it okay but i would say even though probably screaming inside you're thinking i'm completely isolated feeling very lowly feeling very overwhelmed um the hardest thing to do is ask for help but once you've done it it gets a lot easier Mm, i think it's handy when you tell the story and you're like oh actually i'm not the only one because sometimes you feel that you are isolated and it's like it's only me it's only my child i don't know what to do now what It's, it's only me it's only me and then you go out and then it's like oh actually it's not only me yeah and it's, having it's, those discussions with people you can even figure out stuff for yourself just by talking about it yeah i find it's not not so much i mean obviously it's nice to be surrounded by these experts yeah. but sometimes they might express something and then learn something yeah. just by expressing it and they won't have all the answers you mm. know they won't have all the answers but they might have a little golden nugget of something yeah. that really changes something for you in you know in your oh, wow. in your home life and it works so you know just get as many of those nuggets as you as you possibly can i sure. think i think the other thing that i'd say to parents is um they they will 
feel that their whole energy and their whole existence is going towards their child and there's a whole range of emotions that go with that there's there's guilt you know there's probably um, a bit of resentment and and you can be a really harsh self-critic as a parent of a, of a child that's different and I think again recognizing that all of those emotions are completely normal you know they're completely normal because you know life has thrown something that wasn't part of your grand plan and that's going to take a period of adjustment you know to um so being kind to yourself i think is really really important and um but having an outlet of being able to share with other people and that's why parent support groups are so important you know you you have license to say actually yesterday was awful and actually there are points where I really struggled to find those positives about my child because I haven't slept for two days you know I'm not suggesting that that's typical um but everyone's going to have those moments and and feeling in a safe space to be able to share those um outside of someone that's you know writing something down on a clipboard for example and doing an assessment is really important so I think self-care for parents is is really important um so just you know there's that old adage isn't there that you can't pour for an empty pot you've got to look after yourself before you look after someone else so making sure that you do the basics of self-care well um you know that's eating sleeping and I know that there'll be challenges to that but just looking after yourself well so that you can stay resilient so that you're best placed to look after your child um but don't you're not alone so don't don't feel like you've got to do it alone um but find out what's in your local community right for with those you're not alone and look after yourself <laughs> we are going to wrap up our episode today we'll make sure that all this information about the coffee shop workshops in are they here in the field yes they are yeah yeah uh, all the information is in our um podcast information so like Nairobi will, will put that so where whoever that wants to come along they are more than invited you are our guests guys um so here we are thank you everybody thank you very much thank Helen. you thanks for having me thank you very much for joining us on our second episode of on the spectrum please do follow and like us and subscribe and until next time stay, stay on, on the, the spectrum, spectrum.